0: If you will open uh, to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. God is so good. Bless the Lord. What a beautiful day to be here to worship our Savior. He is so good. So as born from above, blood-washed believers, Jesus calls us to a deeper more radical level of holiness than the average religious churchgoer. You guys do realize there is a difference uh, between those who have this relationship with Christ that goes beyond two hours on a Sunday morning and those who, for whatever reason, just like they like to come and hang out with church people, right? Because nowadays, everybody's religious. Everybody's religious, celebrities, athletes, porn stars, uh, and, and, and we know that some of them don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they call themselves religious, they call themselves lovers of God. Some of them uh, may even think that the epistles are the wives of the apostles, uh, but those religious folk are not the problem. They, they are not the problem. Uh, we know most of them are on the outside uh, looking in. The problem actually stems from some regular, regular, regular ch- churchgoers who are so regular that they have this idea that their regularity in church makes them Christians. Some of them are pseudo-spiritual, some of them are pharisaical in their walk But we know them, for those of us who have been around a long time in the church. For those who are new to the church, unfortunately, they follow some of these people to their hurt, to their harm. So what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we are once more, is take a direct attack against all who think keeping the law externally, even to the 10th degree, is sufficient in the eyes of God for entering the kingdom of heaven. But on the contrary, instead of drawing one closer to God, legalism actually softens the law's demands by focusing solely on the do this, do that, do this more, do less of that. But whether we do or we don't, in the eyes of God, it is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of, of, of the internals, the, the, the why do you do what you do? Before any action is made, the, the lover of Christ should always ask himself, does this glorify God? Does my thinking glorify God? This is where Paul is uh, uh, getting at in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. There he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever whatever it is, even down to the most basic necessities such as eating and drinking, everything is to be done to the glory of God. So we get to this section in Matthew chapter 5 where it's still early in Jesus' sermon to the masses. And he's speaking to a people under the law. were being taught for the most part by leaders who didn't fully understand the full moral significance of the law. Yes, they they knew what it said, but they couldn't uh, comprehend how the righteousness that the law called for actually involved an internal conformity to the spirit of the law rather than mere compliance to the letter of the law. So Jesus, in his ultimate wisdom, begins breaking down the true meaning of the law. As he starts to dive into the application part of the sermon, Jesus addresses six specific areas. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and how you handle your enemies. How do you deal with your enemies? Today, as we cover this section on lust, there are three areas I want to bring to your attention. The depth of lust, the deception of lust, and deliverance from being controlled by lust. So let me read our text, then I'll pray. Lord knows I need it. Uh, And then we can dive deeper into the word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. May your spirit guide me. May I decrease and you increase. Let your word transform us into, into this holy person that you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the depth of lust. The depth of lust. Adultery is one of the most damaging sins mentioned in the Bible. Not only is it like sticking a knife in the person who has committed their life to you, but it's like turning the knife to inflict more pain and internal damage once it's inside. It is seen as one of the most dishonorable and treacherous sins a person can commit. When we look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, we're told, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32, the scripture says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Destroys himself. And I like the way Paul breaks that uh, down in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. He gives us more insight into that destroying yourself. For the unrepentant adulterer, who thinks they're going to get away with it, the word says do not be deceived. Neither the, the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning if nobody on earth ever found out about your adultery, God says in the end you shall stand condemned and be cast to hell. The purity of marriage is one of God's primary concerns. So we must recognize the seed of adultery, which is lust, and cut it off at its conception. This is why Jesus warned the people by saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. His mission is to tell them and us what the seventh commandment really means, what it really means. And the reason why it is extremely important that people get clarity on the warning against adultery in its embryonic stage, which is lust, is because adultery betrays the covenant of lifelong exclusive loyalty to one person and violates the one flesh union that God ordained. So Jesus takes the law they thought they knew so well and digs deeper. He addresses more than just the physical act of adultery. He peels back the layer, the layers and exposes the lustful heart behind it. And just as we look at uh, the crime of murder last time and how Jesus showed us that, that, that the real issue is the unrighteous anger which the law prohibits, he now addresses the seventh command forbidding adultery while also condemning the lustful heart behind it. He's revealing what true purity is in the eyes of God. In this text, he specifically addresses men, but women are to heed the warning also. Women are not to lust nor attempt to stir up lust. And according to some well-known scholars, the heart of the warning is also against enticement. In the original language, the essence of this verse comes forth like anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent so as to get them to lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think D.A. Carson is onto something when he says the motive of the person in Jesus' scenario is looking at someone lustfully with the intent to get them to look back at you lustfully. This is not glancing at an attractive person, recognizing their attractiveness and then moving on. The person Jesus is speaking about is in sin because they were looking with the intent to feed their inner sensual appetite as a substitute for the adulterous act and hoping the person feels the same. Hoping that 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 look would cause them to come back uh, towards you with a look that says yes, and given the right circumstances, under 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 the right conditions, they would have gone through with it. They would have committed the act and physically broken the seventh commandment. The look is intentional; it's not an accidental turning of the head, seeing someone attractive, even looking for a second too long, and like oh. What am I doing? And then going on, Jesus is not speaking about that. The lustful intent that Jesus is speaking about is a sin that has three accomplices. The heart, which is the mastermind. The eyes, which play the role of the lookout. And then the hands, which are the doers of the crime. The heart controls the eye, and then the eye inflames the heart. The doer, the hand, stays ready to complete the act, ready to engage in some sexually immoral activity. Adultery does not just happen. And Job recognized this. He declared in Job chapter 31, I made a covenant with my eyes. How could I then gaze at a virgin? If my heart has gone after my eyes and my heart has been enticed by a woman, that would be a heinous crime, an iniquity to be punished. Too bad King David didn't make a covenant with his eyes when he saw beautiful Bathsheba bathing from his rooftop. He had the opportunity to turn. He could have went back inside and watched Law and Order or or Gladiator or some, some, some war movie, but he didn't. Once his heart lusted after what his eyes saw, the third accomplice, his hands, took action. And this was a heinous crime and iniquity that would be punished by God. Too bad Adam and Eve didn't make a covenant with their eyes when they saw the forbidden fruit. Once their heart lusted after what their eyes saw, it was too late. Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, so you have the eyes and the heart, the desire looking at this thing and lusting after it. And once those two accomplices declared the tree was to make one wise, the third accomplice, the hand, took part and completed the crime. As Eve took of its fruit and ate, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And this heinous crime was punished by God severely, and we're all suffering because of it. They lusted after what was forbidden, and in that they also broke the tenth commandment, coveting. They they weren't content with what God had provided. Contentment is the key, and more on that later. But that's the deception of lust, which is our second point, the deception of lust. Lust is the sin of coveting, and coveting is the gateway to many sins, including adultery. We see the seriousness of lusting in our text when Jesus tells us to do whatever we must do to avoid it. Verses 29 and 30 of Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In the 3rd century A.D., a young teacher in the Christian faith named Origen devoted himself to study and self-denial. Sounds great. Study and self-denial. However, he had this incredible lust after young women. He loved young women. So what did he do to, to, to try and stop it? He had himself castrated. Thinking this would cure his lust, it does not work like that. The, the mastermind behind the crime, the heart, must be circumcised. The heart must be cut. And throughout the Bible, we see it, right, Whether it's the right hand, the right foot, the right big toe, whatever it is, it's it's euphemistically spoken of as your greater and your stronger body part. So when the Lord spoke of us cutting off these body parts, obviously he's not being literal. Plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand will never solve the problem of the lustful heart. But what Jesus is saying, and this is hard for a lot of us, is that Whatever place, person, or thing that's causing us to sin, do whatever you have to do to remove the temptation. Whatever it takes, if it's causing you to stumble in your walk with Christ, remove it immediately and decisively. Don't taper it off a little at a time. End it right away. And I understand that temptations are all around us, attacking from every direction. But I want you to think about this. Even Jesus was tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. Truly God, yes, but also truly man. And speaking to his humanity, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So being tempted is not a sin since Jesus had no sin. The key is removing the temptation or removing yourself from the temptation before you give into it and then be found guilty of sin. Most of us know the story of Joseph, Joseph, how he fled temptation when his master's wife tried to commit adultery with him in Genesis 39. But do we take note? That his testimony also includes that he wisely refused to even be around her. She would have to come and find him. He wisely removed himself from her presence until the one time she came at the end and was so desperate in her lust, she took some of his garments, but he ran. He didn't try to taper it off. He didn't try to shed or spread the gospel with her in this relationship. I'm going to hang around her. Maybe she'll love the Lord that I love, the Yahweh that I serve. No, he's like, I am out. That's wise to remove yourself from all the temptations that this world brings your way. Jesus in his humanity resisted following through on every temptation that came his way. Likewise, as his followers, every time we're tempted to do something we know is against the will of God, we have to resist and turn away. And here's the thing. No matter how uh, spiritual that person that you speak to on Sunday mornings, they come in and they have their big Bible and they can quote scripture. Remember, everybody has their Everybody has some temptation that's pulling at them, trying to get them to leave the straight and narrow path. But we can never settle. We can never look at our past. We can never look at our parents and say, well, that's just who I am. We can never say that once we have been born again. That's the purpose of being born again, to be remade or made new. This is why we have the Spirit of God. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, I go away, but I'm going to leave a comforter, a paraclete, someone that will be with you and in you so that we can say no. And one way that we can uh, have more wins than losses is to celebrate the victories big time. Every time that certain temptation comes and you don't give in to it, Don't salt because you still have temptations, but you didn't give in to it, so celebrate. Praise the Lord God who promised never to leave you. The Lord God who at that moment said, turn, and you turned. That is a big thing. This brings confirmation of salvation. This says, I am not who I used to be, and I praise God for it because I can't do it apart from him. Don't minimize the victories. Celebrate the victories. Our old nature, the flesh, is always battling to get its way. It's like a spoiled five-year-old. I want it now. But the spirit is the mature Spirit from God who says no. No. And when you're listening to God, you can jump up and down and do your happy dance and say, that's my father. He wants me to have life. The carnal body is not concerned with spiritual things. It its only concern is for the right here and the right now. But giving in to fleshly lust according to scripture, only leads to death, torment, broken relationships, disease, death. James 1.15, when sin has conceived or when lust is fully conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We cannot prevent certain thoughts from entering our mind. Right? We, we have all of these crazy thoughts and we're like, wow, where did that come from? But we can keep from meditating on them, playing around with them in our minds and giving them birth. How? A few ways. Scripture memorization. Scripture memorization, right? We read the word and some of us read so fast like we're in the track meet. Slow down. Grab the word. Quote the word to somebody close to you. Memorize the word, then meditate on scripture. You sit there and you look at the word and you say, who wrote this? Why did they uh, uh, write this? What was the purpose? Let me see the background. Who are the people he's speaking to? Now I can apply it to my life because I understand the purpose and the point. Meditate, stop on the word and say, I need to use this every day. This is why God has given this word to me. How else do I get these thoughts out of my mind, these lustful thoughts out of my mind? I take the sermon, the most recent pertinent sermon, and I play it back and I listen to it and I I contemplate what is being said. What is being said from the word of God? I go back and I read the scriptures that were quoted and I let this sermon transform me. And how else? By reflecting on the goodness of God. Reflecting on where God has brought you from, but even more important, objectively, who God is. Not internalizing everything, but apart from your life. Because you may be on a stretch, uh, on on a rough stretch of your life, so you have to look at God objectively, at who he is, and meditate on that. Instead of presenting our minds and bodies as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, we are called to present our minds and bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Our Father is worth it. Our Father God is worth it. Worth it. He's worth us presenting ourselves before Him as those who have overcome through sacrificial obedience. And when we do it, this brings us joy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When you've come out of this period of temptation and you've been victorious by the Spirit of God, it brings joy within you. It's similar to children standing before their parents after they've dressed themselves for the first time for school, right? Uh, Some of you remember those days. There's this big Kool-Aid smile because they did it. They dressed themselves. They may look like a train wreck, but they, they, they did it, and they're happy about it. And so that's how we are before God, right? It may have been a little messy. It may have been a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache, but we did it. God, thank you. Thank you. The apostle John, James once more put it this way. He said, blessed, happy, eternally happy, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's verse, uh, verse 12 of James chapter 1. When Jesus said we should cut off our right hand and pluck out our right eye if it's causing us to sin, even if he was speaking literally, think about this. It means that it is truly better to go to heaven maimed than to end up in eternal hellfire with all of your body parts. He uses severe. And bloody language to describe how devastating and devious lust truly is. In our day, the hope is that those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ would see just how devastating and devious pornography truly is. Pornography is wrong in so many ways. But for the lack of time, I'm going to point out three real real quick. Number one, pornography inflames lust within and swirls around the mind for years. Those images stay with you, and it hinders your ability to have a healthy Christ-centered relationship. Not saying that you won't have this relationship, but it makes it harder. Why? Because you see someone you're attracted to. They may be the most intelligent, godly being on the earth, but because of the physical... Mess that you've been looking at for years. You may only see the physical part. And miss the person. The whole person. Because of your mind being shaped by these images and images and images. God is able to cleanse the mind. God is able to take everything from being physical in your mind. And let you see the spiritual beauty. And the whole person. Second, for those who are married or intend to be married, the lust created from watching pornography is unfair to spouses. They can't compete. They can't compete with the models who polish their bodies for a living and have editors who remove all of the defects. In warning his son against the entice- enticements of the flesh, Solomon told him to rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast. Fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's Proverbs 5, uh, verses 18 and 19. Everything sensual is to be shared with your wife or your future wife or future husband or present husband. And number three, pornography is wrong because it degrades women and teaches them to degrade themselves. Even though Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 declares God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Knowing women were created, created in the image of God, no one who calls themselves a child of God should have anything to do with that industry. If our desire is to glorify God, to exalt God, we will minimize our self-centered desires and maximize his holiness for all to see. That's the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, when dealing with his own personal holiness, the apostle Paul said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. In other words, how could he preach about the transforming power of the gospel if he's living an untransformed life in sin? At that point, he's not qualified to preach in the household of God. And this brings us to my final point, which I'm presenting in the form of a question. How do we get deliverance from being controlled by lust? Discipline and contentment. Discipline and contentment. Our culture hates discipline. I blame the parents, myself included, myself included. But in spite of all that, as Paul disciplined himself in fighting sin, we are called to do the same. We don't just give in whenever our body has a yearning for something. That doesn't work in any area of life. We don't go to work whenever we feel like it. I feel great, I go to work today. I don't feel good today, I'm not going to work. No, you will lose that job. We don't eat whatever we want anytime we want. If we do, we'll lose out on good health. And we don't give in to lust every time we feel the urge. If we do, there is a long list of things that we will lose or could lose. We lose our testimony, We lose the joy of our salvation. I didn't say we lose our salvation, but we lose the joy of our salvation. We lose intimacy with God. We may lose some close relationships. We lose our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. As Romans 8 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We lose our fruitfulness in our service to God and the whole time we're only deceiving ourselves if we think our lives are acceptable before God. James 1:22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. However, when we follow Christ and we stand strong against every temptation, When we we stand up against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, there is so much to gain. Holiness fosters intimacy with God. Holiness builds spiritual strength and stability and also makes us useful and effective for God's purposes. Overcoming lust even glorifies God in the presence of those around you. It causes them to look at God differently because they remember what you used to be like. And do you know what it's like to be able to tell someone how you used to give in to lust? How you used to give in to sexual immorality, even pornography, but now God has delivered you. God has given you a hatred for those things that separate you from his intimate connection, fellowship. God has confirmed your salvation and it's joyous. You worship and praise God because of that. That's why discipline plays such a major part when it comes to conquering lust because we know we can never have done it on our own. The other way we get deliverance from lust or being controlled by lust, I should say, is contentment. Contentment is the antithesis of lust. In 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul wrote, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And of course, he's not speaking of uh, material gain, but spiritual gain. In every area of our lives, we must seek godliness with contentment. Which means if we're single, we must strive to be content in our singleness. How? By making godliness our chief aim in life. If we're married, it means we must strive to be content with the spouse God has given us by making godliness our primary aim in life. If I'm in the midst of a bad marriage, yet I still have this level of contentment because I know who I belong to and I'm fighting temptation and lust for others and honoring God because of who I am in Christ, that's great gain for me and more importantly for the kingdom of heaven. I am not putting a black spot on God's kingdom. That's the greater thing, because when I am gone, there will be those who are watching me, who may still be here, who are affected by my ungodly life. In marriage, godliness must be our primary goal, not having the perfect spouse. What happens if having a a, a spouse who keeps me happy is my primary goal, and they're failing miserably at that? Then I'm miserable. Life is terrible, and I want out. I don't want to be married anymore. However, if godliness is my chief aim in life, I have Christ as my example on how to be godly through the worst situation. You can turn there if you want. Time is getting short. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, I need you to get this. I need you to be able to go back to this, live it, and share it. 1 Peter chapter 2, four verses or five verses from 20 to 25 or 20 to 24. Because Christ sets the example. Some may be suffering in their marriage right now. How do you persevere? Because it is tempting to look elsewhere. It is tempting to be lustful and then give a reason for it. Well, I'm not happy. But in 1 Peter 2, 20, we get the classic example from the highest being who ever stepped foot on this earth. How to endure through suffering. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And that's important right there because we have to ask ourselves, do we care? Do we care if it's a gracious thing? In the sight of God, or is it all about me and what it looks like to me in my view? My life isn't good. That's the highest thing in my life. The most important thing is how I feel about it. Peter is saying, no, it's gracious in the sight of God when you are suffering and still saying, praise you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I'm going to walk this straight and narrow. It's hurting over here, but I'm going to serve God. That is good and gracious in the sight of God, and that has to be elevated in our thinking. God knows, God sees. Continuing, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Getting there, I'm not saying it's easy, but the more I exalt Christ, the more I remember that it's a gracious thing in the sight of God when I don't curse back at someone who cursed back at me, when I don't go to cut someone off because they cut me off, and I don't do other things, making hand gestures, when I don't yell back at my wife or whoever I'm in closest relationship to, because most of you know, that's the person who may irritate you the the most and the deepest, and God, who is sovereign in his providence, says, I put them there. For you, you need to grow. You need to grow. You need to look at me. Every marriage has its flaws. Every close relationship is going to be hurt. I like to be early. My wife, my wife Sharon, she likes to make it just in time. <laughs> I, we, we, when we go to bed at night, we, we have the, 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 the covers evenly spread. But something happens throughout the night where I end up with all the covers. I don't know what goes on, but I, I have all, I'm not doing it on purpose, right? I don't know what happens. But, but, but getting back to my third point, I want you to notice I didn't say getting deliverance from lust, but getting deliverance from being controlled by lust. Due to our sin nature, it is almost impossible not to lust at some point in our lives as we go through different seasons, which is the point Jesus is making as he goes through these, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. Each one of them is showing us that when we get to the true meaning of the commandments, everybody's guilty. Everybody's a sinner. According to God's righteous scale, Unrighteous anger is equivalent to murder. Ungodly lust is equivalent to adultery. We're commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And if that's not daunting enough, Jesus said, we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Who can do that? No one. So at this point, we have to confess in agreement with the scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I am so happy that is not the complete sentence. The sentence actually begins in, 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 in verse uh, 22 of the third chapter of Romans, but it ends in verse 25 of the third chapter of Romans. And the whole sentence says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, as a gift. That's beautiful. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, just to satisfy, to satisfy the wrath of God. But in other words, the whole sentence says, it means it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't, your background, it doesn't, Matter, You are a sinner. I am, we are sinners who can never attain God's righteous requirements on our own. But here's what God did. He gifted or graced all who believe with something none of us deserves. Justification. He declared us the ones who spent their lives, lives in sin, innocent. And the question is, how can a just God let the guilty go free? by the blood-bought redemption Jesus purchased on the cross. That sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God, who, according to Psalm chapter 7 and 11, is angry with the wicked every day. But for those who are justified by his grace as a gift, no longer is there anger, but reconciliation abundant love, joy, and peace in his presence. And once again, no one could ever do enough to attain the righteousness that God requires to make it to heaven. We could acquire none of those things. Scripture teaches repeatedly that people are capable of nothing but a flawed and imperfect righteousness. Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Therefore, the gospel message that Jesus gave his life for sinners must be the foundation for everyone who comes to Christ. For those among us who don't know Christ as their savior, Jesus says you are lost. You're lost. But he also says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost God the Father says I made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God God says you have sin my son has righteousness humble yourself Believe in my son and the switch will be applied. My son's righteousness will be accredited to your account. He took the brutal punishment, including death on the cross for sin. And for those who don't believe, if you die and go before God, you will have to pay for your own sins. You will receive the devastating punishment to come, including the second death, which is torment in the eternal lake of fire. And I pray your heart is opened and you turn to Christ before it's too late. Finally, the gospel is also for the believer. The gospel reminds all believers that the only way we are justified is the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. This is how humility is exalted And sinful behavior, including lust, is defeated. This is how Christ-like love, discipline, and contentment is established and maintained. Thank God for the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for sinners. Let us pray. Father. May we always desire holiness and turn from the lust of the flesh. Knowing holiness fosters intimacy with you. Let us walk the path your son set for us as an example. Knowing it builds spiritual strength and stability in Christ. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Lord, make us useful and effective for your purposes. Your word promises that if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, they will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So help us, Lord, Help us to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Amen.